0: Salespeople aren't winning new business for the organization because they're busy doing other stuff. And what's the other stuff they're doing? Well, the other stuff they're doing is the stuff that we argue should be the responsibility of operations. They're managing accounts, which is just a fancy way of saying rolling up their sleeves and getting involved with transactions that they probably shouldn't be involved with. There's so, so much nonsense that goes on in organizations based upon this sort of careless idea that we get to determine the price at which something needs to be sold. You know, people talk about, well, we're calculating the the calculating the price. No, you're not. You're playing with numbers. You're not calculating anything. The market calculates prices. What you're doing is determining whether or not you're prepared to do a transaction at the market price.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Today, I'm talking with Justin Rothmarsh learning from Justin Rothmarsh. I've had Justin on the podcast a few times and we've collaborated with a number of clients. We've run a number of workshops together. I'm a big fan of his book, The Machine. And he also mentions another book by Eli Goldratt, The Goal, big fan of that book as well. Say, Justin does some work in tech, primarily works in uh, industrial manufacturing businesses. And really his whole stick is around sales process engineering which really is the pointy end of the spear of an organization, but really encompasses everything to do with front of house. So customer support, client delight, account management, sales. How do you re-engineer all that bit at the front end of the organization that deals with clients day to day and make it more efficient? The killer question, I suppose, is if you doubled the size of your sales organization, if you doubled the number of salespeople, do you as sales director, business owner, founder, CEO, do you think you double your revenue? And if you don't, your sales organization has already got past the point where it's now only delivering marginal return. And you have to know why. One of the things in the conversation we have is he was talking to somebody recently who said, I don't technically suppose I need you because one of Justin's promises is I will help you grow your business at double digit growth. And the guy said to him, I suppose technically we don't need to hire you because we're already growing double digits. And Justin said to him, Well, why are you? And he couldn't he couldn't answer the question. So we get into why that might be true. We get into why marketing and brand aren't important, why product quality is absolutely key and ultimately becomes the constraint on the growth of your business. So another great conversation with Justin Rothmarsh. I always enjoy these. He's contentious. He's opinionated but he's right. I'm sure you love it.
0: Well, my name is Justin Rothmarsh. I'm the founder of Ballistics. I started Ballistics about 30 years ago in Australia, born in the UK, grew up in Australia, moved to the US about 15 years ago, live in Los Angeles.
1: Oh, well, do you know what? Some people will not have heard our previous conversations and said so they will not know and they will not guess that uh, that a fact about you that most people don't know. But we'll, I think, I think we should come. I think we should save that. So let's save that. And certainly, it it seems even. Uh,
0: next time you make next time you make that revelation, I'm going to come dressed <laughs> up for it.
1: Excellent, excellent. We were just chatting before we were recording about you know sort of business cycles. Where where do you? You know, your ability to help organizations really sort of re-engineer their sales process. Are you is it on the uptick that you win, do you think? Is it on the, is it on a downturn or is it is it all the time people have this challenge? And and you've written the book. Why haven't people just read the book and done it? Why haven't why why do they still need to ring why do they still need to ring you up?
0: Well, a lot have. A lot have. In fact, I I was talking to someone yesterday and she said, Oh, a good friend of mine is a huge disciple of yours, read the book and He grew his industrial business and sold it to private equity and he's he's rich now like you know it was a it was a eight figure or nine figure exit and he's rich now and i looked the guy up he's on our database but he's never bothered to say hi (laughs) so we there's a lot of that actually um which is uh, which is gratifying um it's it's nice to see so there are a lot of people who read the book and simply implement it in terms of the first question is uh I think that um, we people think about the work that we do as being within the sales department and certainly our focus is sales but most of the work that we do or a good portion of the work that we do isn't actually directly on sales so I would describe the area of the organization we work mm-hmm. on as the front of house so the customer facing part of the organization and that and we would argue that that should include part of operations and sales and a, a decent chunk of marketing um, so we most of the work is on the front of house but but the operations part of the front of house so building or re-engineering customer service teams building onboarding teams for the onboarding of new accounts tech companies call it customer mm-hmm. success i think well i know they do and and design engineering which is the, the which is the sort of the pre-sales part of uh, of uh, the engineering team um now Given the given that we're doing work on the whole front of house, it really doesn't make much of a difference, whether it's an upturn or a downturn. If the organization's growing, what tends to happen is the constraint quickly shifts to the operations part of the front of house. And if the organization's not growing, then the constraint shifts to the sales part of the front of house. But most of the organizations we work with are constrained in the front of house somewhere. And on the up cycle it's in the operation side, customer service onboarding and design engineering. And on the downswing, it's it's on the sales side, you, you know, marketing and, and sales.
1: Well, I was just as you were speaking, I was thinking about a couple of clients that we've both worked with who've implemented your your system. And they were I suppose they were surprised in the first instance that the first two quarters didn't touch sales. It was it was fixing. Yeah. Maybe we should dive in there and go why Maybe there, are, maybe are, there maybe are there some philosophies at the core of what you think to be true that people find difficult at first glance?
0: Yeah. Well, most executives, they understand the organization isn't growing as quick as they would like it to. They recognize that sales should be responsible for growth. And if sales isn't working right, there must be a deficiency mm-hmm. with salespeople. So we better, you know, f- mess with a comp plan or send them off for sales training or do a ropes course and have them hold hands in the moonlight or whatever the case is. And, and my argument would be that, that this part of the organization probably deserves closer scrutiny than, than that. And then if you look more carefully, what you generally realize is that salespeople aren't winning new business for the organization because they're busy doing other stuff. And what's the other stuff they're doing? Well, the other stuff they're doing is the stuff that we argue should be the responsibility of operations. They're managing accounts, which is just a fancy way of saying, rolling up their sleeves and getting involved with transactions that they probably shouldn't be involved with. So for example, managing the onboarding onboarding of new accounts, um, but also salespeople get involved in the technical aspect of sales, which we would move to design engineering. A part of the engineering department, so the design of solutions and the generation of proposals and so on. So, given that salespeople are typically busy with all that stuff, there's no point trying to make changes in the sales department until you've reallocated all that stuff that's keeping salespeople busy currently.
1: Certainly, we had a client with us this week, and the the salesperson that they have, who's notionally charged with new business, new business is difficult, mm-hmm. um, and he wasn't earning enough. So they let him do some account yeah. management because then there would be some transactions that would flow through that would allow them to pay him some more money, and and of course, doing managing transactions for existing clients is much less work than so when you say they're busy, uh, yes they are, but it's because it's easier in some respects, sometimes it's easier for them.
0: I was with a client the other day, and they allowed, as many organizations do, their salespeople to manage accounts. Now, managing accounts is a misnomer. We're degrading the concept of account management by by carelessly allowing salespeople to manage accounts. I mean, I think account management is a valuable concept. If you have Caterpillar or Boeing uh, uh, or Bank of America uh, as an account and it's likely that you have multiple initiatives running concurrently and that complexity there needs to be managed so there's a requirement for that for sort of a layer of governance that sits on top of the business as usual and and and, and if there's a requirement for that you absolutely should have someone providing that and that is what I think we should be calling account management but what most organizations call account management is basically boils down to performing customer service type tasks Solving transactional issues, generating simple quotes, processing transactions, you, you know, arguing with customers about what they're going to pay for a specific transaction, all that crap that, sh- that, that salespeople shouldn't be allowed to be involved with. It needs, all that stuff needs to be engineered out of. I mean, ideally, you wouldn't even have customer service responsible for it. Or, you know, all that transactional stuff should be automated, ideally. But it distracts salespeople from selling and it provides an excuse for them not selling in and, and and there's a danger here i was with a client the other day during covid the demand for sanatorial and janitation supplies increased they're in Jansan. and a couple of their salespeople were earning a million bucks plus now it wasn't because they're out there winning new business it's because they were sitting like brooding hens on a bunch of accounts whose consumption happened to go through the roof on account of COVID. They did nothing special other than process the in transactions, and they earned a million plus for a couple of years.
1: There is an argument that you might have changed the comp plan at some point because you might have noticed. And, and of course, then the, then the company might say, well, if we did that, they'd leave. And I suppose your, your contention is the customer would still ring and would still order, and are you, why are you paying people commission on this?
0: I'm not a fan of commissions, as you know. <laughs> on the best of days, but if you're going to couple if you're going to couple commissions to something, presumably it should be the acquisition mm-hmm. of new business, not the not clipping the ticket on, you know, annuity style transactions. I mean, if I were to pay salespeople commission, which I never would, it would be it would be some portion of the net present value of a of a new account. In other words, I would look at that account and say, I think the lifetime value of this account is a million bucks and I'm going to give you a percentage of that and then you're going to hand the account over to operations and you're never going to have anything to do with it moving forward until it makes sense to go and you know sell some new category of business to that account. Um, and and, and that, would, that would incentivize growth to the extent that commissions do actually incentivize anything, which is not much.
1: I think the evidence is... If, if it is actually transactional, I can find evidence that if people are on piece rate, you know, you know, putting widgets in a box, doing a thing, knocking 100 doors a day, you know, paying people piece rate, you can, you can drive up some volume.
0: Yeah, if it's mindless work. Yeah, yeah, if it's mind- I mean, that was the finding of uh, the, the, there's some academic studies that have been done, and yeah, yeah the findings are that mindless work, digging ditches, uh, and I, w- I, would, I would agree that there are elements of sales that are mindless, like knocking on doors. If you pay someone on a piece rate, you're probably going to increase their rate of work. But if they're, if they're doing knowledge work, if they're sitting solving problems, you know, designing a new airplane, for example. I mean, if you went to Elon and, and, and suggested to him that maybe the engineers at SpaceX would work better if you paid them on a piece rate, he'd throw you out of well, there in 10 seconds. The idea would be idiotic on the
1: face of it. Well, or, it, you know, if, if support techs got paid per ticket or, you know, developers got paid. I mean, I yeah. often pose the question to clients. I say, look, if you paid, yeah, well, they'd write shorter lines, wouldn't they? I mean, they just would, right? They would. And if you paid, if you paid support or in a call center, you know, when as soon as they say how many calls you make, you know, they hang up on customers or they just pick up the phone and put it down again so that their call stats look better. People's behavior yeah. changes to match the, the compensation plan.
0: I think sales managers are lucky that piece rate pay doesn't directly drive behaviors because if it did, you'd end up with, with even worse mischief going on in sales departments than you yes. have currently.
1: And you get plenty of that. I mean, you know, uh, Wells Fargo got into a whole heap of trouble opening accounts for people that, had, that didn't want them because that was how people measured success.
0: I mean, I started sales in the insurance industry, and it didn't take long sales salespeople, salespeople long to figure out that they could convince people to buy you know insurance policies uh, that they didn't intend to keep. and and then so a salesperson could join the organization, sell all their family and friends, leave with their big fat commission check, and then have their family and friends cancel. And, the, and, and then when the insurance company came and did the clawback, as we used to call it, the company would end up holding the can. It took, it took sell, We'd hire new salespeople. It took new salespeople like a matter of weeks to figure that out.
1: <laughs> so if you don't pay people commission, what do you pay them?
0: Their market value, just like everyone else in the organization. So there's rumor <laughs> has it that Google has an artificial intelligence engineer who they pay $5 million a year. I've never met a salesperson who earns $5 million a year. And the reason they pay him $5 million a year is because that's what they had to pay him to convince him to go and work at Google.
1: Well, I was uh, reading an article yesterday where graduates who have a degree which is specific to AI were getting $400,000 straight straight out of uni.
0: I, I think every business owner or entrepreneur, wannabe entrepreneur should have to repeat to themselves 10 times a day, As they're shaving or whatever, the market sets prices. We don't. And that applies to how you compensate employees. It also applies to, to the products and services you sell. There's so so much nonsense that goes on in organizations based upon this sort of careless idea that we get to determine the price at which something needs to be sold. You know, people talk about, well, we're calculating the, the, calculating the price. No, you're not. You're playing with numbers. You're not calculating anything. The market calculates prices for both employees. And what you're doing is determining whether or not you're prepared to do a transaction at the market price.
1: That sort of willingness to pay, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a book called um, Someone Will Be the Most Expensive, It May As Well Be You. And the sort of the subtitle is you then need to work out how you create the value to make that true. And, and it's, it's true for both when you're selling to customers and when you're attracting and retaining employees. You've got to have a value you've got to have a value proposition.
0: Yeah. It's not about a approach to figure out what's the yeah, what's the top top decile of what the market is paying for this particular product or service and then figure out how do we have to engineer and deliver our product or service such that we can we can price it at, in the top decile.
1: We always do a bit of work with clients on their valuation when they come on board. And we were doing some work recently with a client and a 1% price increase was worth, they're not a a huge company, but 1% price increase was worth a million dollars of valuation to them. A million pounds, a million pounds of valuation. And so that was a, you know, that was a number that they didn't realize. And quite often, I think clients can charge more than they are charging. Actually, often it's as a small business, it's in your head, a sense of lack of worthiness.
0: Yeah. The next question you ask is if you think there's enough elasticity to get away with a one percent price increase, which presumably you and the client both did, is how would we have to change the product or service so that we could get away with a five percent or a ten percent or twenty percent price increase? The core problem that we rub up against is 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 not really a problem with sales. I mean, we fix we fix problems that are structural problems. That you, you, know, you know, redesigning the rearchitecting the organization. But all we do is shift the constraint to the core product. In other words, what we end up bumping up against is the organization doesn't have a truly compelling proposition. When you put the proposition in a a, a kettle and boil all the fat out of it, it looks just like everyone else's. And I think a lot of executives are scared of it. There's not enough of the gray matter in the organization dedicated on a day-to-day basis to the kind of innovation that's required to cause the product to be materially different or the service to be materially different. And there's two ways to be materially different. One, one way is to be the biggest player so that you have a sustainable cost advantage and be cheaper and faster. Faster. The other way is, to, is for the product to be different in the more conventional sense, like Uber versus a traditional taxi cab. Or Amazon web services versus self-hosting the server in your in your bedroom
1: you've either got to be the cheapest or you've got to be different That price doesn't necessarily mean you are actually the cheapest in the market because somebody like Mars have a lowest cost they have a lower cost of um, production for their bars of chocolate than Nestle do which allows them which allows them to buy the best shelf space in every store that they're in and therefore they get a they get advantage from that.
0: Yeah, so they earn they earn higher margins yeah. at a lower sell price. I mean, that's the ideal, right? To have better margins. Uh, the, I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of moving to subscription services. And we worked um, on a few occasions with a company in Australia called Programmed. They used to be called <laughs> Program Maintenance Services, but when they floated, it wasn't a great acronym, PMS. But what they did is they sold painting as a service. So they approached. You know property managers so if you were Westfields and you had lots of shopping centers or similar they would approach you and they would say look you know we'll take over the painting uh, what what we're really going to take take responsibility for is keeping your buildings looking nice and we'll keep your buildings looking nice for x number of dollars per month and you sign a five-year contract and you'll have nice looking buildings for the next five years But the the reason I'm saying buildings looking nice rather than painting buildings is their core service was painting and they had uh, Australia's largest uh, uh, painting crew. But they also had one of Australia's largest commercial cleaning crews because what they knew is that you didn't just have to paint buildings to keep them looking nice, you could power wash them as well. And by having their own internal salaried painters and cleaners when they signed these contracts with clients, it enabled them to move demand around. So what normally happens is everyone wants their buildings painted all at once. But if they move them to a subscription service, during busy periods when everyone wanted their buildings painted, they were out there pressure washing buildings, maintaining the paint job until they could paint them during a quiet period. The biggest force of, uh, of painters but their painters were consistently busy. So on average, they were earning a higher utilization on their painting crew than competitors did. And, and that meant that their margins, not only were their prices uh, surprisingly low, but their margins were significantly higher than a typical commercial painter.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I was with a client recently that they sell digital SaaS software to manage service providers, but they're not the cheapest. And so, that, so when you say, oh, they were painters, but they're not selling painting... You know, that, that was absolutely true at, at PAX 8. You know, they, you could buy that software cheaper from somebody else. And therefore, that wasn't the value. The value is the whole, the, they, they have a platform, they have a marketplace. And so they, you can integrate the software acquisition with your management tools that you manage the end client's IT with. And so it takes out all that, you know, the values in all of the integration and the shag factor that it removes and it, that it balances up every month. Whereas if you previously bought it from lots of different people, there was a whole load of manual activity that you had to do.
0: Well, it's interesting. Software people talk about building a platform. And, and I guess Silicon Valley introduced this idea of platform or platform companies into the vernacular. But it's been around for a long time. And of course, programmed in Australia is a, is a platform. And if you look at them today, they don't just have painting and cleaning. They have plumbing and a whole bunch of other industrial services. I don't know whether they realized it or not, but by doing what they did years and years ago with painting as a service, they actually built a platform that they've been able to bolt a bunch of other things onto. Because once you have a bunch of clients on a monthly retainer plan, and they have an additional requirement, all you have to say is, hey, well, why don't we just up, up your monthly fee? If you have some you know, buildings that need maintenance, especially if there's a big upfront capital expenditure required, you have the opportunity to say, them, look, we'll cover the upfront CapEx if you sign a five-year contract for the ongoing service.
1: Rackspace, Pier 1, that was our model. You want some hosting. We'll buy all that server infrastructure monthly fee. We'll manage it all.
0: Yep, absolutely. You can do it with websites. Rather than paying up front to have a website built, we'll just sign you to a hosting contract.
1: Well, and now Rolls-Royce do it. You don't buy an engine. You pay hours in the air, and it includes the maintenance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In aircraft, people think like that. Uh, What a lot of people don't realize is that The airplane that you fly on contains a whole bunch of secondhand parts. And it's because the parts are sold by the hour. So you buy a van for a jet, you pay X for it because it has, I don't know, a thousand hours of life left in it. So nobody cares whether it's new or not. All they care about is how many hours worth of life am I buying when I buy this van.
1: I I think of that whole creating the value proposition as product marketing. And I find it certainly in B2B companies to be often absent and i and i think probably because the clients i'm working with started a company and had some sort of niche they knew what they were doing and therefore they get to a certain scale point they've now got to the point where maybe they're not as nimble as they were you know maybe they're not as hungry maybe they're no longer as cheap and so they start to look very much like everybody else
0: and you have a legacy customer base and you're concerned about disrupting them. I think, I don't know whether it's cause or effect, but straight away, I think the problem is this term product marketing. The moment you relegate the responsibility for product to marketing, you no longer have an interest in product. And that's not to demean marketing folks, although some of them deserve to be taken down a peg or two. It's because it's because marketing folks don't have the ma- a mandate to make the kind of decisions that you need to make in order to have a materially better product if you worked in the taxi industry and you went to your bosses and said i got a great idea let's you know transform ourselves let, let, let's adopt all of the key elements of uber well now it would make sense in retrospect but nobody would have said yes to that in advance or another example would be vendor managed inventory, which has transformed industrial distribution here in the US and probably else probably the UK and Australia as well, less lesser Australia. But nobody would have said yes. No executive would have said yes to a marketing person who proposed vendor managed inventory. Look, we're gonna give all our stuff to customers on a consignment basis and they'll just and, and we'll just bill them for it as they sell it. That sounds like an insane idea, but it's been transformational for big industrial supply houses here. So even if Marketing folks had ideas like this, ideas that are clever enough to move the needle. They don't have a mandate to execute on them. These ideas have to come from the top of the organization.
1: These are strategic choices that businesses have to make. And certainly the turnaround of Best Buy is a great example where they said, well, you know, how do we compete with Amazon? Oh, well, actually, if you get in your car and drive here, you can have it quicker than Amazon. Apple and Samsung and Microsoft will pay us to have a store within a store and pay us per square foot, plus they'll hire, help pay us the wages of some staff who are experts in their products and you know, transform the shopping experience. I think these things are strategic. In some ways, the executive team in an organization often doesn't spend a lot of time talking to its own customers. Some of them do, but some of them don't.
0: You know, there's an interesting tell, just to beat <laughs> up on marketing people a little bit more. Marketing people actually admit Without admitting it, which is why I call it a tell that they're not responsible for product. And the way that they admit it is they don't talk about products. They have cho- They've done this. They've done this bait and switch. They talk about brands. They say, "Oh, we're building a brand," or they use brand as a synonym for product, or even for company. They say, "Oh, I'm managing a portfolio of brands." And what they have done, or tried to do, is try to fabricate an abstraction. They've tried to argue that the marketing persona, if you like, of a product is somehow different from the physical attributes of the product. We have a word for for goodwill, right? It's goodwill. You know, if you have a product that has a good reputation, it has goodwill. And and the accountants have recognized that for years. We don't need this word brand. But it's a fabrication that's been created by marketing people for the benefit of marketing people. And they do get great benefit from it. They they convince folks to give them money to work on the the brand, whatever the fuck that means. But the interesting thing is it's also an admission that they don't have responsibility for product. Because if they did, they wouldn't talk about brands all day. They talk about building better products. Somebody
1: showed me a video the other day of Elon Musk on TV in the U.S. being interviewed and he said people should just spend less time on PowerPoint, less time in meetings and spend more time building better fucking products.
0: I have never once heard Elon use the word brand. And you, you mentioning his name just reminded me of that never once heard him use that word. And I'm pretty sure if you use that word in front of him to refer to SpaceX or Tesla, he would be insulted by it.
1: It's interesting though, I, in a sense, I think with Tesla, with the roadster, they created a brand. They created something that had some pull, which then allowed them to create a mass market. Mass-
0: oh, I'm not arguing they don't exist. They do exist. But the, the, the brand is a consequence of a great product. It's an emergent effect. It's not something that you get to engineer directly.
1: It's like trying to create a brand around a sports team that never wins a game. I think that might be a tough call.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's like a, th- it's like a thief saying, oh, I need, to, I need to, to fabricate a good reputation for myself so that I can t- pitch stuff for more folks. Well, unfortunately, the only way to have a better reputation is to stop being a thief, right? Your reputation is an emergent consequence of your actions on a day-to-day basis.
1: So who else should we beat up on? Who else, who's next? <laughs> what are the functions? What are the functions?
0: Well, I don't want to beat up on engineering because they're, they're my friends. They're the only ones who
1: <laughs> like me. <laughs> Do you think that's a consequence of engineering-led, and, and it, either in the physical sense or in the IT sense, engineering-led businesses where people have a low regard for salespeople from birth? And therefore, you know, one, of the th- one of the things that people often say about your book is, is oh, this is brilliant. This, this helps me come up with a way to manage salespeople that, I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me before, and manage salespeople much more like I manage the rest of the business or manage the engineering team. And so make it less about this art of sales and, uh, and have more structure and science to it. And certainly not paying them commission helps people in engineering feel better about sales.
0: I think if I was to pick on engineers, engineers make a mistake that's the inverse of the mistake that marketing people make. Engineers fall in love with the attributes of the product and ignore the ignore the marketplace altogether they build what in their mind is a beautiful elegant thing and then they will try and bludgeon the marketplace into falling in love with it so you need the marketing folks to be the voice of the customer to keep engineering on the right track because otherwise engineering the engineering function becomes entirely self-referential and it builds some beautiful thing that nobody wants you know the Betamax or, or or Dvorak keyboard, you know, which is technically better, arguably, but nobody actually wants it. So these are the products of engineering, and I mean Elon's brilliance, and not just Elon, it, uh, probably anyone who's made a who's who's built a billion dollar business from product innovation. These folks have the ability to have simultaneously a deep understanding of product, the ability to reason. From first principles where product design is concerned, jobs would be the classic example, and also have just an intuitive understanding of the marketplace, like, like a profound understanding of what, customers, what moves customers.
1: I find it amazing that often people don't know who their competitors are. Or from a sort of jobs-to-be-done perspective, they don't really know why people buy their product or what the value is, or why people buy our product and not a competitor's product. That deep, intuitive understanding is often lacking.
0: Yeah, I was talking to a $100 million business the other day, and they said, well, technically we don't need you guys because we're already growing at double digits.
1: Why, why had they hired you then? <laughs> why had they hired you then? Technically, we don't need you.
0: Well, they they kind of they they knew there was a problem, but but the the guy was kind of uh, needling me a little bit. He I, I said, well, he said, what do you do? I said, we help organizations get you know get to double digit growth. He said, we have double digit growth already. So my question is, why? He said, what do you mean? I said, why do you have double digit growth? I bet the companies against which you compete are not growing consistently at double digits. He said, no, just us. I said, why? He said, oh, um, sales. I said, I said, are you sure? If you count the volume of genuine selling conversations that you have and you compare them with the volume of selling conversations your competitors have, you know, discounted it for size, perhaps. Are you sure the, the delta is caused by, he said, no, I'm not sure at all. In fact, the reality is our salespeople are all busy looking after the new business they've won. They're not actually selling at all. I said, well, if you're growing at double digits, shouldn't you know why? Because if you could figure out what it was exactly that was causing you to grow at double digits, maybe you could do more of it or promote it more aggressively or double down on whatever the hell that thing is. And he said, yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. If we're growing at double digits, we should probably know why. Because then when it
1: stops, they won't know what to do.
0: (laughs) And it will stop. Yeah. And if you're growing at double digits without knowing why exactly you're growing, imagine how much faster you could grow if you figured out what it is exactly that's causing this growth.
1: And have you, have you started working with them yet? Do you, know, do you know what it is?
0: No, I don't know what it is. It might be that they have capacity where other folks don't. It might be that they have a reputation for solving one particular problem. I mean, if it's because they have capacity, it, they, they should be trumpeting that they have capacity and they should probably be buying more capacity. I mean I mean if, if simply having capacity causes that rate of growth, that, that there would be an argument that they should hold more inventory than maybe the the their accountant would would calculate they should be holding. If it's that there's one particular skill they have that is causing them to win business, they should probably figure out what that is exactly and trumpet it from the from the rooftops. But no, they genuinely don't know what is causing them to grow at a double digit rate. And the fact that they didn't know wasn't causing them any concern because they're too busy celebrating the fact that they're growing at double digits.
1: I do think your other, uh, your other question is, if you double the number of salespeople, would you double your revenue? And often people go, God, no. <laughs> like, instinctively, they know that that's not true. And it's just like, well, you don't have, you don't have an efficient sales organization. <laughs> yes.
0: No. Well, why not? If you double the size of production, if demand was there, presumably you would produce twice as much.
1: Yeah, and it makes people feel uncomfortable because then you're you're forcing them to look in the mirror.
0: What it signals is your current sales model has hit diminishing returns. So it's kind of the opposite of the 20% growth problem. What's happened is at some point in the past, you grew by having salespeople. So you added more salespeople and you grew faster. And then you stopped adding salespeople. And the reason you stopped adding salespeople is because you hit diminishing returns. That you, you flipped over from being in a situation where adding more salespeople cause growth to it not causing growth. And something fundamental changed at that point. It, it's kind of important that you go back and figure out what exactly was it that changed. When they talk about uh, phase, phase, phase changes or phase shifts in physics, you know, when, when you, you heat water and it becomes steam or when you cook c- cool water <laughs> and it becomes ice, you know, your business went through a phase shift. That's kind of important you understand what happened.
1: And have you got some examples of what they are often?
0: Yeah, well, what happens is, uh, and this kind of ties into the conversation we were having before we pressed record, most transactions are programmatic, right, particularly in B2B. Once you establish a trading relationship with a vendor, the actual transactions for the most part happen on autopilot and smart vendors encourage that. They set up EDI or they set up subscriptions or until further notice type arrangements. What happens is salespeople, when you add them, or when the business is young and you add salespeople, salespeople run around and they, and they generate revenue. And you recognize the revenue because you didn't have any yesterday and you have some today and it's especially valuable, but the value isn't really in the revenue, not the revenue that you recognize when the accounts won. The value is in the lifetime of the account relationship. So as you win more and more accounts, you end up going from a position where if you look at your revenue... In the beginning, a large percentage of it came from new business that had been won during that reporting period. To eventually, you're in a position where only a small percentage of your revenue was won during that reporting period. If you look at a fifty or sixty million dollar business, probably only ten percent, probably less, of the revenue that they book in any reporting period was actually is actually the result of business that was won during that reporting period. The rest is a result of business that was won in previous reporting periods, maybe three, four years ago, perhaps. So. By allowing salespeople to take responsibility for revenue, you're allowing them to involve themselves with transactions. And what basically happens, and it's very, very simple, is that the salesperson transitions from winning business, maintaining business, which basically means fussing around, processing transactions, resolving, you know, so your salespeople start off as salespeople and end up as overpaid customer service reps. And you can sustain that when you're very small, because a significant chunk of the revenue you book each reporting period is coming from new business. But once you get to $20 or $30 million a year in sales, you can't sustain that anymore. You can't keep hiring salespeople and paying them a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to fuss around over transactions when those transactions are programmatic and when customers know they're programmatic and are holding you accountable to everyday low prices, just like your competitors. So you end up in the situation where your sales team gave you an initial boost but it's no, longer, it's no longer economic. The model's broken. It won't scale.
1: There's another conundrum that I see often and keen to get your insight. People think about their sales team, I think more like an NFL team with a salary cap than a you know, team in the Premier League because they've got Mary and Mary's their number one salesperson. And then instead of hiring somebody better than Mary or at least as good as Mary, they go and hire somebody cheaper and obviously not as good as Mary as their next hire. And I just can't, get my head round why they just don't go and ha- keep hiring better people. They sort of have this, I'm going to deliberately hire not as good people. And then that has an impact that accelerates that diminishing returns.
0: Well, the problem is the scarcity of opportunities, I think. Uh, that's the root cause. So, so what happens is if you have a small number of opportunities, it's very important that the person who is chasing those deals is a brilliant negotiator because that's all you have to work with, right? You have a a small number of opportunities. The best you can do is you're very best at convincing that's the small number of potential customers to transact with you. So you end up elevating the importance of Mary with her special communication skills. You end up overvaluing Mary's skills. I mean, obviously, if you have a choice between a capable negotiator and an an incapable one, you're better off with a capable one, right? But the core problem here isn't a deficit of negotiation skills. The core problem in most organizations is a deficit of opportunities. Now, how do you get more opportunities? Well, folks think you run ads or whatever the case is. No, you don't. To get, to get opportunities in a reasonable-sized business, in order to grow at a meaningful rate, you have to pick up a phone and talk to strangers. That's the critical activity, not the negotiation of late-stage deals. It's picking up the phone and, st- and talking to strangers. That's how you get prospects in your pipeline. There's no way of avoiding that. And well, there is. You can invent something that's materially different, like Salesforce did back in the beginning. And, you know, But if, if you're selling a product that's, that isn't a, a breakthrough product, you need a team of people who pick up the phone and start conversations. So the critical requirement is the conversation starter, not the skilled negotiator. Our approach would be to say, well, if Mary's a, a skilled negotiator, fantastic pull her back off the front line, have her available when 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 there's a requirement for these skilled negotiations. I met a guy, you might've heard the story before, I met a guy once on a flight. He uh, shuffled onto the plane late wearing a suit and a pair of flip-flops and he plopped into the seat beside me up, up in, I was lucky enough to be in first class and uh, I got talking to the guy. He lived in Malibu, straggly hair, nice suit, flip-flops. It's kind of an unusual look. And I was curious, who is this guy? What does he do? And he worked for Oracle. And I asked him, what do you do exactly? And he said, I'm in sales. I said, oh, you sell software. He said, ah, kind of. He said, my job is to fly around and help our teams in different places in the world at the pointy end of deals, closing deals. So he was basically a proxy for Larry who flies around the, the world, you know, so there's someone who was like the Oracle equivalent of a Mary. He was pulled back from the front lines and they flew him in at the last minute to close a, close a deal. And that's what I'd be doing with Mary. I wouldn't be looking for more Marys. I'd say, Mary, you sit here and do nothing until we need you. And I would build a frontline team of people who aren't Mary, but who are reasonably intelligent, reasonably decent communication skills, and above all else, are prepared to pick up the damn phone and talk to strangers. Because until you do that, you're not going to have a pipeline.
1: And do you know what? That that comes back to the value proposition again. And, and marketing at this point, maybe not being helpful to you because they're off building a brand. And what you need is somebody who can say, well, when we ring Fred and we talk to him, what does Fred care about? What will we have to yes. say to him to get his interest?
0: That's exactly the point. Yeah, this is where we end up headbutting the criticality of a compelling proposition. Because if you have a me too proposition, you, you, you're gonna hire a small team of people to put headsets on and, and start conversations with strangers. And those people are not going to be well-received. And if they were intelligent and reasonably capable, they'll be gone by the end of the week and you'll have to replace them with lesser individuals. And before you know it, you end up with a room full of purpled head intransient drug addicts, you know, the traditional telemarketer model. And of course, if you're trying kind to of sell an expensive product to discerning individuals, that's probably not who you want making the first approach. So in order to maintain a team of intelligent folks, the kind of folks you or I would be happy to receive a telephone call from, you need to have a compelling proposition so that your salespeople have a reasonable success rate when it comes to starting conversations with strangers.
1: Fab, we could probably keep going another five hours if we wanted to, but I'm going to try and tease a few more things out of your head. What, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier?
0: I told you we, we were making a documentary to, 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 as a kind of an accompaniment to the book. In the process of making the documentary, because it's because it's like a 40-minute documentary, so the script for the documentary was maybe 12 pages as opposed to 400 pages for the book. So it forced me to kind of distill my ideas down to try, to try and reduce them to their essence. And what I stumbled across, and it's obvious in retrospect, is a critical requirement for loose coupling between sales and operations, or you could say between sales and the rest of the organization. So I think this, this loose coupling is a term that's not talked about often, but it's, it's critical. And my point is that an organization should consist of two discrete value chains. There's the value chain that converts accounts into revenue or that extracts revenue from accounts. So I, I think I said before that most certainly B2B transactions today are programmatic. The salesperson sells the program, the program generates the revenue. So the job of operations should be to extract revenue from the programs that salespeople have sold. That's one value chain. Now, there should be another value chain, and the other value chain is salespeople selling programs. But the critical thing, if you want the second value chain to continue to exist and to be scalable, is that the second value chain must only be loosely coupled with the first value chain. In other words, if you took your sales folks and the marketing folks who support them, and you took them away for a year, the value chain that generates revenue should continue without any problems at all. Now, and if that's not the case, if your salespeople are up to their elbows in transactions in onboarding new accounts in writing proposals and designing solutions, if you've allowed your sales department to be tightly coupled with operations, then it's only a matter of time until your sales department is no longer selling. And most organizations that we work with reached that point probably five, 10 years ago. So when you're designing your sales department, you need to look for examples of tight coupling and undo that tight coupling. Salespeople are writing proposals. They shouldn't be. They're designing solutions. They shouldn't be. They're solving problems for customers. They shouldn't be. They're managing account relationships. They shouldn't be. Because all of those All of those activities I've just listed are required to convert programs into revenue. So salespeople should not have any involvement in anything that is required to extract revenue from a program. All of the requisite skills and capabilities that are required to extract revenue from programs must exist within operations. And that leaves the sales department free to focus exclusively on the pursuit of new programs.
1: Which might net new customers, but might be new programs existing customers.
0: I've been aware implicitly of the importance of loose coupling, obviously, for a long time because the machine is all about it. But the word never appears in the machine. And I think the word is super important because it is actually possible for an executive to go back to their business and look for examples of members of the sales department performing activities that belong in the revenue generating value chain. And every time you find a salesperson involved in an activity, that is required in order to extract revenue from a program, you need to extricate the salesperson from that activity, which means you need to build the capability into operations and you need to ensure that that particular activity is performed at a faster rate and to a higher standard by whoever is now responsible for it in operations than it previously was by the salesperson. And at that point, you, and At that point, you can say, well, now the salesperson is freed from that responsibility. And when the salesperson is freed from the responsibility for every activity that exists within the value generation, the, the, the revenue generation value chain, now you can say we've decoupled sales from operations. And it's only at that point that you can realistically expect your sales department to focus exclusively on the pursuit of new business.
1: I like that. It puts into focus... Some challenges that some of my existing clients have. I just think that, that I'll I'll go and try that language on them. I think it'll bring them some clarity where they've got what they call practices within inside their business that do discrete, you know, data or you know, Azure consulting or Microsoft 365, and just having this concept of programs, and then it's their responsibility to extricate or drive revenue in the program that's already being sold. They're, they're sitting there going. Well, we've done that bit. Sales need to feed us more, and actually, they don't. The practices or the business units need to be responsible for growing their own revenue once they have customers on programs.
0: Yeah, and and uh, you know, once you have customers, if the customers' business is not growing organically, then there's something wrong with your service delivery. Fix your damn product or fix your service delivery. It should grow organically. If you're a printer and a customer comes to you and orders business cards. They've just signaled to you, whether you recognize it or not, that, they, that they've stopped dealing with their previous printer and they're transacting with you instead. And their default will be to give you all their printing business unless you do something to really fuck it up.
1: Oh, you know, we used, we used to see that all the time at Rackspace. The client would say, we're delighted with you, but their, growth, their account growth would stop. And what they hadn't told us is that they were putting their new stuff somewhere else. You know, so over time, it would get to a point where it would stop and then the only way is then down. And it takes a long time for them to get out of your data center. But
0: can I give you a metaphor for loose coupling? Sure. So I'm a TOC person and lots of folks, have, I'm sure your folks have all read the goal. Technically, when we talk about a buffer, what the buffer represents is a loose coupling, because that's why we have a, a queue of work appearing, because there's a loose coupling between one resource and the next resource in the chain. But for folks who aren't manufacturers, that's not very emotive. So I stumbled across this one. Imagine a bicycle with a rider, and the rider and the bicycle are on a slight decline. And the decline is at that ang- at an angle sufficient to counter the rolling resistance of the bicycle. So what that means, is, if you climb on the bicycle and you push off with enough momentum for the bicycle to be upright, it will continue in the, at that momentum indefinitely, okay? So you've got the rider sitting on the bike and it's, it's rolling on that incline, maybe at, you know, five kilometers an hour or whatever. Let's assume the cyclist stands up in the saddle and he sprints for a period of time. If he sprints for, you know, 30 or 40 seconds, he could easily take that bicycle from five kilometers an hour to 20 kilometers an hour, probably 30 kilometers an hour. Assuming a modern freewheeling gear set on a modern bicycle. Now at 30 kilometers an hour, let's assume the cyclist sits back down in the saddle and stops pedaling. Because of the freewheeling gear set, What happens is the bicycle continues to roll at 30 kilometers an hour indefinitely. That's an example of the relationship that we're looking for between sales and operations. So operations is the bicycle. Uh, The movement of the bicycle is revenue. And the cyclist is the sales department. You want your sales department to be able to stand in the saddle, figuratively speaking, sprint, uh, generate a bunch of new business, and then sit down and stop peddling and have operations assume complete responsibility for converting that new business into revenue.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because the sales department will often say, this is my revenue number. And the sales department will look at it and they'll take the whole revenue, which means accountability is massively has now been incorrectly apportioned. So, you know, that 100 million pound business that you talked about with 10 million pound of new revenue, the sales department will say, that's all us. Whereas actually that 100 million should be on the executive team should be apportioned somewhere else. And the growth of that revenue should be operations. Your sales company.
0: department should not have visibility of revenue. They should be able, I mean, everyone in the organization should know what the organization's revenue is, but it is foolish to give the sales department or salespeople visibility of revenue by a uh, broken down by account. Because salespeople will instinctively take responsibility for it. I would show the sales department aggregate revenue. I would say the business is is doing, you know, did a million bucks in revenue this month, but I would not give them a breakdown by customer. And the number that I want salespeople to focus on is the the net present value of business one during this reporting period. And the net present value is an assessment of the lifetime value of the accounts one.
1: Or TCV, if that's easier. TCB. TCV, total contract value. It'll be slightly different to net present value, but...
0: The problem with contract value is often you'll sign a one-year contract and the contract value only equals the net present value if the average term of a customer relationship is a year. Now, if you're signing a one-year contract and your average average tenure is one year, that means you have fundamental problems in operations because everyone's quitting after a year. If your average tenure was one year, that means your customers on average stop, transact, lose interest in transacting with you after probably three or four months, but they continue paying until the end of the year because they're contractually ob- obligated. So if you have a minimum one year term, your actual, uh, the actual term of one of your customer relationships, the average term is probably going to be two or three years. So if you use the contract value, you are underestimating the net present value by 50% probably. And, and also it sends the wrong signal to the rest of the organization. There's a couple of problems with it. Um, we're not winning accounts with the intention of keeping them for a year. We're winning accounts with the intention of keeping them forever. But the other problem is it, is it entrenches the value of the contract. The contract shouldn't be necessary. If it is necessary for you to lock up your customers with a contract... It's an artificial stimulant. And for as long as it's necessary, for as long as you have to take Viagra, right? You should probably take Viagra because you'll perform better with than without. But if you can get off it, it's probably a a good thing. So rather than entrenching the value of contracts, we should be challenging the organization to develop the product or service to the point where there is no contract required. You get lock in without a contract because then you have a much more compelling proposition for the salespeople. Uber didn't make you sign a contract, right? So Dominic, after you used Uber for the first time, what percentage of your rides since then have been not Uber?
1: I just turn up somewhere and use Uber, unless it's not an option.
0: So almost everyone on the planet, from the first time they used Uber, the percentage of rides they had was almost 100%. And that's not because Uber made a sign of contract, it's because they had a superior, a a materially better product.
1: And they got geometric growth because you used Uber, and then you told me that I should use Uber, and so there is then zero cost of sales and marketing for adding additional customers and retaining your existing customers forever.
0: Yeah. So my view is don't glorify contracts. Treat them as, at best, a temporary requirement until you fix the product.
1: Other than the machine and maybe the goal by Eli Goldrat, what else should people be picking up and reading, do you think?
0: There are a couple of good marketing books. I like, um, 22 immutable laws of marketing is a good introduction to recent and Trout, and they, they were a lot of other books over the years. So, I mean, I think where, where marketing's concerned, their books are kind of the mother load. I wouldn't bother with much else. The exception to that would be crossing the chasm inside the tornado. And that range, those books, there were a handful of books there. I, I would read all them. I, I think that recent Trout are going to give you good insights into consumer marketing and, uh, the crossing the chasm and, and so on is going to give you r- really all the insights you need into B2B marketing. Oh, there's a book called, I think it's The secret life of information, which had a profound impact on me. It was a book written about Park Xerox. I think it's called the secret life of information. Um, I would definitely read that book. I'd read zero to one from, but by Peter Thiel. And I read a lot of biographies. I don't like business books, with the exception of the go- with the exception of the ones I've mentioned. and mine, I hate business books. I think the more you can, the more business books you read, the dumber you get, on average.
1: There's a book I read yonks ago. Unlike most business books of a certain age, they actually then released it on Audible. So I caught back up with it, and I had the author on the podcast recently. Bill Price was at Amazon when they obsessed about the book's called "The Best Service Is No Service," and it was like, "Don't fix it." work out why they had to ring us in the first place and obsess about driving down that. Uh, and so it was great to have him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and, uh, and chat to him about that book. And that would f- absolutely fit in your model about transactional, programmatic, take these things out, don't have any customer service people.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, you, you consume electricity out of the wall every day. And I bet you don't know who your account manager is at the local utility who provides you electricity. And if they rang and they said, I'm your account manager, can I come and have coffee with you? Probably say, fuck off. <coughs> it comes out of the wall. I know where it is. I don't need you.
1: I, do you know what? There are lots of companies I've worked with where they are in the same position as electricity, important but not strategic. And, and it upsets them that their clients won't have coffee with them
0: when we work with tech companies tech companies will often sell alongside platforms so so you you know you're selling into organizations that have sap and you're selling some gizmo that integrates with sap it's a bolt on and what these companies always try and do is differentiate their product from sap and i say to them don't do that because if you make your product look different from sap the organization contains all of these antibodies that will hunt you down and expel you from the organization. The smart thing to do is to create a product that looks identical to SAP, that can be released into the SAP ecosystem and immediately become invisible so that no one can ever find it again. So don't promote your stupid brand. Don't try and differentiate your product from SAP, make it part of SAP, make it just disappear into there.
1: Very good. Where should people find you? Where's the best place to go? Find you on LinkedIn, find you on YouTube?
0: Well, what I'd recommend is we have this documentary uh, appearing on YouTube at the beginning of next year. Uh, rather than subscribe to the YouTube channel, I would simply go to my blog, which is salesprocessengineering.net, and subscribe. That way you'll get an email when, when that documentary is live on YouTube. So that's salesprocessengineering.net. But my book's on Amazon, uh, The Machine. Folks can read that. And uh, I, I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and all of those places. And Ballistics is the company website.
1: Just as ever, an absolute pleasure to get on and chat about sales and how people could be more efficiently growing their organizations.
0: Excellent. It's been fun. And hit me up when you're in LA. We'll cook a steak.
1: That'd be brilliant.
0: I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Dominic.
1: some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.